Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, we are here with the whole Sermon at the Temple. This is it. This is the whole apex of the Book of Mormon. Everything that we've talked about all up until this point, this is what the whole thing's about. This is exciting. Yeah, we're kind of at the main course here, right? Starting into the Book of Mormon version of the Sermon on the Mount, aka Sermon at the Temple. And we have a lot of uh, very similar, uh, if not word for word, uh, with a few variations of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Then we get into a more uniquely Book of Mormon discussion about the law of Moses and how it pertains to the Nephites and how they're supposed to live now. Then they go into, or Christ goes into a discussion about the lost sheep as it pertains to the Nephites because they see themselves as a, a unique people. And so he speaks to that, and and I love the narrative here because while he he does recognize that they are in a unique situation, he then he then explains to them, actually, you're not so unique. <laughs> There's people all over the world just like you, and I love them all, and so we're going to gather them all together. And so I I love that a little bit. It's a little bit of a, a smashing of the Nephite narrative of their of their uniqueness, like like Christ does in such a loving way. But uh, yeah, great chapters here. Absolutely. The, the Beatitudes are my absolute favorite. I've actually ignored them. I have to say I'm a little ashamed isn't the right word. That's not the the, the feelings I feel, but I, I look that I have not understood and given credit to the Beatitudes and the place and the prominence that they really play in the Sermon on the Mount and even the Sermon in the Mount itself. And, you know, I remember reading when I was a kid that you know, this, this really is the apex of the Book of Mormon. The prophets have testified that this part is what the whole Book of Mormon leads up to, and then it kind of leads away from this moment. So this is this is it. And the fact that of everything that Christ could have said on both continents, you just said, right, there's some very unique Book of Mormon things, right? But the things that I'm looking for that I think are really fascinating are the things that he said in one part of the world and that he brought to the other part of the world. And so since he's actually testifying of those exact same things, I'm like, hmm, maybe we, maybe we should pay a little bit of attention to this. Yeah. And so right here, we notice that the very first thing, and it shares it too with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And what, what it is, is that Jesus is at the temple in Bountiful. That's the setting for this. And what I think is beautiful about that setting is that over when he gave the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, the very first thing that Jesus did is he went up to a high mount, which is always symbolic of a temple, right? He turned around and he set himself down. And that posturing is about is that now we're about ready to hear something about the message of the temple, as it were, the message of God from a high place. And here in the Nephite narrative, 
Well, it's not even the Nephites anymore. We're kind of losing the Nephite uh, mm-hmm. identity, aren't we? But it's the people of the Americas that we are now still seeing that same kind of imagery coming out. And what I love about that is, especially as Latter-day Saints, we get the symbolism and the imagery of the temple because the very first ordinance that we go to at the very in the basement, right? It's always the basement in the lowest possible place of the temple. We always find the baptismal fonts. And this baptismal font is going to have some symbolism of death and a type of renewal of a brand new life. And then it starts to go through this journey and it starts to learn what this new body is all about and what all the functions of this new body do and what all the functions of this new body is about. And then it's empowered and realizes that this is how, now that you know what the function of this body is all about, then you become empowered to go out and actually know how to act. And you're taught how to use this body until you finally get into the celestial room where now it's about basically contemplation. It's a place of silence. It's a place of reflection. It's a place where you sit down and you you meditate on everything that you've just been through and you just sit with God. And so it's like this full circle that at the beginning you sit with God and it kind of brings you back full circle. And there you are in the end within the celestial room, you're still sitting with God. And I absolutely love that imagery. It is beautiful. You know, you were talking about how you weren't ashamed, but you know, it was something like that. I think I think maybe, Shadow, that you mourn the lost time that you could have understood the Beatitudes better. Oh, yeah, that that <laughs> that definitely lands. <laughs> so to throw a Beatitude in there, you mourn it. <laughs> That's right. I was mourning. So as you and I talked a little bit before, Ben, I figured we were going to talk a little bit here to start off with a little bit about scripture and to try to context, try to contextualize the... Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes with something else that's going on in the scriptures. And it's, you know, I've of all the books that I've read about all the Beatitudes and on the Sermon on the Mount, there's this theme that keeps coming through that the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like the constitution for the kingdom of God. It's this blueprint to what it means to live in the kingdom of God. What kind of, what kind of person lives there? What kind of person resides there? And how do we become that person? But to really kind of get what Jesus is getting at, several years ago, I had gone up to uh, uh, the Mormon Historical Association's uh, yearly annual conference. I was on a flight home from Boise, Idaho. I was reading a book, and it started to talk about Cain. And the book was on nonviolence and about uh, American militarism and and about the American narratives and about how we, we shape and form those narratives. And it brought up and it started talking about the Cain narrative. And it was the first time in my life that I, the story of Cain and Abel came to life to me because it was this really obscure story. We've all heard it. It's just one of those stories that you're going through. Oh yeah, Cain was jealous. He killed Abel. God visited him. And he, then he's like, am I my brother's keeper? And then Cain was cursed. And that's really all we know about it, right? Yeah. There's very little discussion about what you're supposed to learn from that story, typically. Right. Right. And so when I was coming home, I really got into studying it. And I've been studying it for the last couple of years. And holy cow, once we kind of get on into understanding a little bit about what this means, and then we juxtapose that with the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, it really comes to life. So I'm um, in using the Genesis 4 version um, from the King James here. Now, I realize that there is a much broader discussion of this in the Pearl of Great Price, and it very much adds to what we're about ready to talk about. It it doesn't contradict anything. It just adds a lot of flavor to it. It adds a whole extra layer of understanding and things to talk about. But the the Cain story starts off with God coming down and basically warning Cain. He's like, Hey, Cain, listen, sin, sin's coming for you. 
and he almost like anthropomorphizes sin, makes sin like this being that's coming for him that wants to devour him. Sin here is anthropomorphized as a predator, or not not anthropomorphized because that would say it's like human, but it is uh, personified as a predator. It says it right. lieth at the door, so so it's it's ready to to strike and devour you. There you go. That so yeah, it's personified as as like as like an animal ready to get you. So here it says in chapter four, verse seven: If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And then it starts to talk about how Cain came through and killed Abel. And this is what I've always loved is when God comes back to Cain after he's already warned Cain and after he's already been there to 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 try to help him not even get into the situation. Cain has now committed the first murder, the first killing, the first shedding of innocent blood. And God comes in. And the first thing that God asks is he says, Cain, where is Abel thy brother? And what I what I love about this question is why is God asking questions that he already knows the answer to? Why is God coming down to this is not for God's benefit. Is is God just here to torture Cain? Is he here to like interrogate Cain? God already knows what's going on. Why doesn't God just smite Cain down for doing what Cain did, right? But as they keep on going through, it occurred to me after reading several of these books about it, and especially this one in particular that I, uh, I talked about on my plane ride home, is when Cain looked at God, he's like, what, am I my brother's keeper? And so Cain doesn't give an answer to what's happened. He he dodges the question. Well, here's what's really fascinating is that we know, this is like psychology 101. Whenever you've gone through a traumatic experience, whenever you've endured trauma, whenever you've been the victim of a, of a situation, the number one thing that really tries to get you to heal from that trauma is to vocalize it, to talk about it. To bring it out into the open somehow. To put words to what has happened. And that's really what I see God is doing here. See, God's coming here to reconcile with Cain and to get Cain to speak his trauma, to confess, to bring it out into the open. And Cain refuses. He dodges the question, am I my brother's keeper? And again, he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And what I get from this is God's coming to Cain again. He's like, listen, what have you done? I've already heard your brother's blood cry from the ground. Now, blood is always symbolic of life. I've, I've heard your brother's life force. I've heard, I've heard his life. I've healed him from his trauma. I've, I've taken care of him. I'm here from you. And Cain refuses. And so this is where Cain is cursed. And, and the cursing here is he lives and he endures his own the pain of his own trauma the pain of his own jealousy born into violence and that violence became the bedrock of who and what Cain was and the justification for why Cain did what he did and he would never admit otherwise and this is where God says and now art thou cursed from the earth which thou hast opened unto which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thine hand and when thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be on the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. It's interesting that Cain is the one that who sees this as a punishment. See, the wicked always see this as punishment. 
when what's going on here, and we're going to really link this over strong into the Beatitudes here. This whole being a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, this is highly reflective of the third beatitude of being meek who inherit the earth. But see, Cain loses his inheritance on the earth. He's a fugitive and a vagabond now. And now he's starting to realize that he's kind of living the anti-beatitude life. And one of the things that really came out to me is after Cain has this conversation with God, and as he leaves and he goes off, he marries his two sisters, he starts to have children. And it's in my, I have three copies of the NRSV translation of the Bible, which is uh, the New Revised Standard Version. I have one for the HarperCollins, I have one from the Cambridge and from the Oxford. And each and every one of them, there at the end of chapter uh, five, the end of chapter four, it says that now is the beginning of civilization. And each one of them, Mark right there, it says, now is the beginning of civilization, which means that, see, we have to understand, we have to learn how to read the scriptures that, sure, these might be absolute historical events. Maybe they even happened exactly as they're stated to have happened. That's fine. But they were written down that the power there is far more metaphoric than it is actual, right? So what we're pulling out from these are stories and things that we are likening to ourself. Now, the Bible's message here is that civilization as we know it, because Cain goes off and it's his sons and daughters that build the first city. It's his sons and daughters that build the first economy. It's his sons and daughters that build the first city walls and that protect them, right? Because they're all operating under this Cain narrative of using violence to be able to secure your position, that you can be able to, you, you accept violence a priori, and that that is the method by which you defend yourself, by which you accomplish the thing that you want to accomplish, by which society is held together. And that's still the same message we live under today with the governments of men. See, whenever we talk about the governments of men, everything that governments of men do operate under the violence and coercion of the state. Law is held together. Government is held together. Civilization is held together. Because if you don't adhere to the rules, then you're going to be punished. If you refuse, even if you just say no, like for instance, if I'm just pulled over for speeding, I'm going one mile an hour over the speed limit. I get pulled over. The policeman asks me for my license. I politely say no. That's not going to end well, ultimately, <laughs> right? So the policeman's not going to say, I, I see your point, have a good day, and him walk back to his car and drive away. That's not the way this works. And then if he says, sir, let me see it now. And I say, no, thank you. Again, if I keep on doing this, eventually somewhere in that in that line of thinking, coercion and violence are going to be used against me. And society accepts that this is the case. Our entire society is held together and framed, and we have what's called good society because we live under the Cain narrative of civilization where violence is used to hold us all together, where justice becomes a discussion of who, what, where, when, and how much violence can be used to control human behavior, right? We don't question whether or not violence is okay. We just question how much can be used, where it can be used, and who can use it. In this case, we believe that the state has a legitimate use for violence, so long as it uses it appropriately. Well, what is appropriately? Well, we don't know. The Constitution says no, no 
what is it? What the, the Bill of Rights says, no cruel and unusual punishment, right? Yeah. Well, what does that even mean? Objectively. Yeah. They're just all, um, social conventions. That's right. It's just social conventions here. So we start to realize that this violence that was introduced by Cain, where we never actually speak our trauma, but we double down on these narratives, are what create the entire underpinning narratives of our civilization. That is just the way it works. That's the way we accept it works. We don't question that it works this way. We actually promote and and give courage and valor and honor to those who use violence and coercion and, and these methods to be able to keep us safe. We form honor around these narratives. So when Jesus comes and he offers the Beatitudes, what this literally becomes is the counter-Cain narrative. This becomes God's narrative by which society moves, acts, and operates. Those who take upon themselves the name of Christ and who will follow Christ, this is what it means for them. You know, another way of uh, looking at it is the world operates by a certain set of assumptions, and Christ addresses some of those, but um, especially when he's giving the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew, you know, he's addressing a lot of the people who are Jews, particularly, and he doesn't just address the world's way of doing it, but then he also speaks specifically to the law of Moses. You know, this is supposed to be a higher law than the world. But what Christ says to them is, hey, I have something more for you. There's a greater law that you could be living by. And this is the good news of the gospel. We have what we could term the law of the gospel um, in that term. So I love how constantly here Christ is telling the people that this is the way you've been living it, and this is the way that I'm offering you that you could be living it, and the greater blessings that are associated with that. And if you come unto me, you will see that this is this is truly what you want. Um, what you will desire is to live this way. I see so much in here of the discussion of justice and mercy because Christ doesn't stand to condemn them for living the way that they have. He justifies that. And he says, now let me offer you again something that is of the kingdom of God. Let me offer you something that will sanctify you and bring you to a new level. I absolutely love that because that, I mean, that feeds right into the next point. You and I didn't talk about this, but that feeds like right into the next point that we often use the scriptures as a way to interpret and relegate away the difficult parts of the Sermon on the Mount and here the Sermon in the Temple. We use everything that man has been doing to be able to try to define and kind of twist and turn and to justify and give enough caveats away to what Christ is talking about so that we never actually have to change our lives. And one of the most powerful things that I've done in really awakening the scriptures is instead of using the scriptures as a lens to evaluate what the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Temple are saying, I've started to use what the Sermon on the Mount and Temple are saying to evaluate and interpret the rest of scripture. And 
that's a powerful thing to do. Then all of a sudden you become aware of the of these principles overlaid on man and just how merciful God has been through the whole ordeal. Right? Because in this particular way of looking at it, just like you were saying, Ben, is that scripture literally becomes a history of men and women living in the Cain narrative, trying to work out their salvation with God, trying to actually make this happen. And we only have a few breakout success stories where people actually start to figure this out, like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, for instance, right? The people of Enoch in Zion, right? A few little bitty pockets here and there of people who just like have this eureka moment of sorts. Something is in the water. I don't know. But they change, they accept it, and they move on, and, and they actually grasp and live this. The other thing is that we're taught that I, and if I've heard this once, I've heard it a thousand times, and I've said it before, I think in, in, in one of these podcasts, that so many members that I've heard whenever we've brought up the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount have said, well, this is all great and good what y'all are talking about and what you're saying, I agree, but this isn't for us today. This isn't the message we're supposed to live in. We live in a day when peace has been taken from the earth and when, you know, this is the stuff that's going to wait until, you know, Christ comes back and kills all of our enemies and then we're going to live this in, in the millennium. And I'm like, are you serious? I, I can't even wrap my mind around that anymore. I, because at that point, because I, I tried to entertain that idea. I'm like, okay, all right, let's think about that for a minute. Do we really believe in a God who, with all of it, with all the wickedness on the earth, came to the earth and on two continents and two different places gave us such a pathetic doctrine that it can only be lived when he comes down as the big bully to completely destroy all the wicked, and then he's there to be able to govern to make sure this is the way that we live? Is that really what we say we're believing in? These principles here are only possible to vanquish evil if God is there to kill everybody first. Like, how are we supposed to love our enemies if God's already killed them? Yeah, it's I mean, like it's like saying, you know, we can only live this way when there's no opposition. You know, that when <laughs> as long as it's, you know, when when it's easy, then then this will be possible. Right. And, uh, exactly right. And yeah, so it's, it, it, for it falls me, though, pretty flat. Um, this isn't the, just the whole point of it is, is that it is difficult and that we're living it in the world and, and that we're living by a separate, uh, set of assumptions and, and, uh, principles. So, well, that's exactly right because the Beatitudes in the sermon have not been practiced and found wanting. They've been found too difficult and completely abandoned. Right. And relegated like, no, 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 that's not what he meant, obviously. And so, yeah, then we start engaging in this. Yeah. But discipleship. Yeah. That's what he said. But, you know, this is what is actually real. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Jesus said to love your enemies. But that's not what he actually meant when you're across the battlefield and you're killing your enemy. So we end up with a lot of these contradictions back and forth. Right. So let's get into a little bit of the Beatitudes, because this is where we start. And what I love about third Nephi 12 is that he adds a little bit of extra stuff to the beginning, and he adds a few more blessings there that talk about baptism that mm-hmm. are in the Matthew narrative, right? So he, so Christ comes up and he says, Blessed are ye, if you shall give heed unto the words of the twelve which I have chosen from among you to minister unto you and to be your servants. 
And unto them I have given power that ye may be baptized you with water. And after that you are baptized with water. Behold, I will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Wherefore, blessed are ye, if ye shall believe in me and be baptized after ye have seen me and know that I am. And again, more blessed are they who shall believe in your words, because you shall testify that ye have seen me, and that ye shall know that I am. And blessed are they who shall believe in your words, and come down into the depths of humility, and be baptized, for they shall be visited with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and shall receive a remission of their sins. That's awesome. We don't get that in the in the Matthew version. But this yeah. is very, very beautiful in the way of bringing baptism into this whole beginning discussion. So uh, even before the part that you read, I, I really love this phrase here. Here he begins. He says, he stretched forth his hand unto the multitude and cried unto them saying, and not only do I love the symbolism and, and imagery here, but also imagining this, this actually happening, right? That, that this is a, a literal act of, of mercy, of condescension to the people. This is a resurrected, perfected being, and he's reached, he's literally reaching to them with his hand, right? But then there's the whole sim- symbolism all wrapped up in that and everything. So just, just that imagery right there is, is really beautiful. And you could, you could sit with that probably for quite a while and think about wow. that. Um, yeah. The beginning of verse two is really interesting. And you have to go back to the end of verse one to really contextualize it because it says here, more blessed are they who shall believe in your words because ye shall testify that ye have seen me. Can this really be true? Can this really be true that Christ believes that the people who believe on the words of those who said they've seen him are more blessed than those who have actually seen him? Well, that's, that's quite a statement, but that's not exactly what he says because right before in verse one, he says, therefore, blessed are ye if ye shall believe in me and be baptized after that ye have seen me and know that I am. In other words, you know, you will be greatly blessed because you've seen me, you know that I am and, and you are willing to follow me. Great. Good job. Pat on the head. <laughs> but yeah, so, so Christ here is saying, you will receive great blessings for that. But think about the the blessings of the people who are going to believe what you say without having seen me at all. And what they'll what they'll be able to live under, the the faith and the blessings and love that they'll be able to live under in that time, even before they've been able to see me. I don't see that as as you would say like a transactional thing. I simply see that as you know, they are able to uh, live within that narrative of believing in Christ for a much more complete period of time. And these people who have only just decided to believe and follow Christ because they have seen him, you know, they missed out on that time before, right? It's kind of like you said, you know, you you hadn't been uh, really focusing on or understanding the Beatitudes and and so you kind of mourned that that time that you lost here. Um, and I just kind of see it that way. Again, Christ isn't condemning anyone. He's just saying there's, there is an opportunity for greater blessings if you so choose it. So, Ah, that's good stuff. So today we posted on our Peace Studies page on Latter-day Peace Studies 
there's the meme here, and it is about, it's from Lao Tzu, where it says, in pursuit of knowledge every day, something is acquired. In the pursuit of wisdom, every day something is dropped, right? So with knowledge, we're always trying to cram things in and get things in. And with wisdom, it's like, we've got to kind of learn how to like let things go, right? It's like the first half of life is where we, we start to accumulate all the stuff we think we need. And it's like the last half of life is like trying to get rid of all the stuff that we know we didn't need in the beginning. But here in the, uh, in the comments, a scholar widely known for his keen intellect visits a Tao master at his humble abode. The master graciously serves him tea, just like what he does at every visiting to every visiting guest. While the master is pouring tea, the scholar talks about Tao. The master continues pouring, even when the cup is filled to the brim. The cup soon overflows, and the scholar can no longer pretend to not see it. It's over full, sir, exclaims he. No more tea will go in. Ah, you are like this cup, says the master. How can I show you Tao unless you first empty your cup? Well, they're drinking tea, so that can't be... An inspired story. <laughs> it's not an inspired story. The mention of tea was was too much. Right? <laughs> that evil plant. So it's herbal and, tea. It's herbal tea. Yeah, let's <laughs> say it's peppermint tea of of some kind that uh, that was Mormon approved. So in in this particular way, we have this analogy of a cup that's overflowing, and it can't be filled with new because it is too much full of the old. Christ has this story about filling new wine in old in old vessels, right? You know, they're uh-huh. going to burst. They're not strong enough to take in the new. And so when Christ gets in, the very first beatitude, as mentioned in, and there's a story here, and I guess at first we have to start here with the story. Each beatitude builds on the, on the one before it. So there's eight beatitudes, and each one is building on the beatitude before it. If you're at the fifth beatitude, you're working on the fifth beatitude, you are already simultaneously or have already done work on one through four. It just it, They build on each other. And then something magical happens with the last one and how it connects to the first, and we'll get there. But to start, to start this journey, so we have to look at the beatitudes like a journey, something that we're about ready to progress and step into. And it's a lifelong journey. In fact, it's a journey that you go on every single day of your life. It, you don't actually ever arrive anywhere. It's just a process, right? But in the beginning, Christ comes along and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What I love about this is that the law of Moses, up until this point, had only ever brought people to the outer... If we're going to think about the kingdom of heaven as having a wall, the law of Moses had only ever brought people to the outer wall. And the reason for that is because nobody could ever live the law perfectly. In fact, there's so many places in the New Testament that talk about this very thing, that we're not saved by the law, because we're always going to fail at the law. And that's kind of the point. The, almost like the point of the law is to get us to know how much we're, not gonna, we're just going to fail according to it. So when we get to the outer gates of the kingdom of heaven, the law kind of brings us to the gate. But what actually gets us to come inside? Well, first of all, this word blessed and blessed in in the New Testament is this word called makarios. And makarios is this really fascinating, beautiful word that more or less describes that this is a state of happiness and of union, and also that if God were here with you, this is what he would be doing. This, this is how you enter into a oneness with God. If you were to come into God, this is how you do it. 
it's a unity with God. It's an atonement with God. It's almost like an atonement with God. To be able to follow this path is to do what God would do. And as you do it, you enter into the same relationship with him. And that's really what Makarios is trying to explain. So each step is blessed. It's the entering into the relationship with God. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, what is the poor in spirit? Well, this goes back to our story about the tea, right? (laughs) Our Mormon approved tea. (laughs) And how this is supposed to work is that we cannot come to God as a full vessel and just expect God to fill us. We come to God every day of our life full of our own opinions, our own experiences, our own thoughts, our own biases, our own cultural, our language. Man, we don't we, we don't even know how powerful language is in forming our ideas that we don't even understand, right? Language is so powerful in how it controls our thoughts and and opinions. And yet we bring all of that with us to God. And we come here carrying all of this baggage, and we expect God to start filling us up with the kingdom of God. And so being poor in spirit here is symbolic of emptying. It's saying, listen, you need to let go of everything you think you have, everything you think you are. You need to surrender what you think is important, your identities, all of the earth things that tie you to this earth, all of the false idols that you worship, anything that you place in between you and me, it needs to go. Everything. Because it, there's two types of poverty in the New Testament. One type of poverty kind of talks about how you like work for your daily bread and you only get paid enough at the end of the day to be able to go get one meal before you kind of start the whole thing over the next day. And if you don't work that day, you don't eat that day. That's poor. But then there's a different type of poverty where you have no arms, you have no legs, you have no eyes or ears or tongue, you can't speak, and maybe you even have a, a, a nervous or a disease in the nerves where you can't feel anything. And all you're ever going to do is rely upon someone else's charity just to live. And that's the kind of poor that we're talking about. It's a complete emptying of everything that you are. Now, this is very much what baptism symbolizes. It's the killing off of the old and just the arising of a brand new tabula rasa, empty vessel. And it has to start there. It has to start with nothingness. It has to start with this blank slate because only then can God be able to do things with it. But once we go through that whole process, we realize that that, that's really traumatic. That is really traumatic. And so the first thing that happens with letting all of that go is this mourning and we mourn and we, and and there's this, whenever things happen to us and they didn't go according to plan, we just have to let things go and surrender to the will of God and the universe that there's this mourning that occurs, but yet we're promised blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. But now we're in this state of being where we are empty of all of the identities that held us captive before, all of the narratives, all of the stories. We've stood there in our mourning and we were comforted. And now we're in this weird, bizarre place where now that we've surrendered our everything that we have, Christ comes along and says, now blessed are the meek. Because in a state where you've got, let go of all of your stories and all of your pretenses and everything that you think you are, only then can you truly stand in a place of, of meekness. That's how you be, that's how we get to be meek is by letting everything else go. And at that point, Christ tells us, 
because you have nothing, because you are nothing, but because you now are meek, here is the entire earth. You have now inherited the earth. And it's in this moment we start to wonder like Enos did, and we start to hunger and thirst and think like, well, I'm empty, but how do, how do I get full again? How can I possibly be full again? And Christ comes along, he says, that's okay. Blessed are you because you hunger and thirst after righteousness. Here, let me fill you. And then at that point, we're like, we can't understand any of this. How is, and even Enos expresses and he says, how is this possible? And then God launches into a discussion of the atonement and of God's mercy. And at that point, that's even what the Beatitudes start with. A blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. See, you didn't get here by yourself. You didn't qualify yourself to this position. You didn't work for this position. You didn't climb a ladder to anything whatsoever. All you did was surrender at the beginning and let everything else go. And I did the rest. You just let go and I did everything. And I've just been all of this. It's just mercy. It is 100% pure, unadulterated mercy. But sometimes we think we can cheat our way through this, right? We think we can actually maybe cheat God, maybe go through the whole thing. Maybe we can get through these steps and processes without the mourning phase, without actually letting go of our identity. Maybe we can keep a little bit of our old identities there secure and we can, and we can bring those along with us, right? Until we get to this beatitude and crisis saying, no, you can't do that. You have to be pure in heart. Blessed are those who are pure in heart because only then can you see the face of God. And we see the face of God because we start to realize that all we can ever be is merciful to ourselves and to each other. And we start to see the face of God in each other. We begin to realize what King Benjamin was saying, that we're only in the service, when we're in the service of our fellow beings, we're only in the service of our God. And that what we do for each other is what we do for Christ. When Christ says, you have taken care of me in prison and you fed me and you've clothed me. And we're like, when did we do this for you? When did we see you? When did we take, when did all this happen to you? He says, when you did it for each other. And we start to see God in the other. And only then are we allowed, we are, are even a possible, can we comprehend what it means when Christ then says, blessed are the peacemakers. Because at that point, we realize that we see ourselves not with our ego, not with the world's narratives, not with everything that the world has ever had. We've surrendered. We've spoken our trauma. We've come into a relationship with God. He's filled us. We're filled with mercy and of a purity of heart where we can only see God in the other. And at that point, how can we be anything else but peacemakers to the other person? How can it be any other way? But see, the world doesn't understand this. And so at that point, God's like, going to be like, this is not over yet. Your trials have just begun because now the world is not going to understand you. Why? And this brings us back to the original discussion. Because they're living in the Cain narrative like you were. That's what we let go of at the very beginning was the entire underpinning of civilization of society. The, the whole thing that we thought kept everything in order and together. And we let it all go. And we realized that be a true peacemaker meant that we had to be poor in spirit. We had to be meek. We had to mourn. We had to be hungering and thirsting after righteousness and being filled with it and to be merciful and to finally have enough purity in heart that we see God in the other person. And that is when we can see 
everybody with peace and what we get in return, Christ comes along and says, they're not going to understand you. They're going to persecute you. They're not, they're, they, they hate what they don't understand. And you are at a completely different level to where their entire way of being and seeing the world is so drastic from what you are right now. That blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yea, blessed are you, and men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, for you shall have great joy. Be exceedingly glad, for great shall be your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which are before you. And this is what I find is absolutely, absolutely beautiful. See, in the Greek rhetoric, we find this especially in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, we have built a hierarchy with the with the Beatitudes, right? Where one leads to the next one, and the one leads to the next one, and all the way to the very top. But to be poor in spirit with the first Beatitude, and to be persecuted with the last Beatitude, the blessing for those is both the kingdom of heaven. We don't get anything more at the end of our journey than we did at the beginning. It's as if God topples the hierarchy connects the beginning to the end so that the first is last and the last is first and everything is just one eternal round that no matter who comes into this cycle who comes into the circle who comes into this narrative of god we are all on equal footing there is no one higher or above anyone else in this journey and we can only ever be on the same level with each other now, once we start to realize that, and then we go back to the Cain narrative and we start to contrast Cain's jealousy and his violence and the a priori violence that he adopted, and we should begin to already see just how drastically different God's way is. And so now the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is now just talking about beatitude type people. We've now talked about a certain type of person who has now experienced a certain journey with God who cannot explain in words adequate to what has just happened to them that you have to like you have to experience it to know it and they can't say it to the world all they can ever do to the world is to invite them to come and so this for me invokes things like lehi he couldn't take the tree he couldn't take the fruit of the tree to his family he had to bid his family to come to him and i find that incredibly beautiful that the whole analogy about how that works together this, um, I've, I've always seen, I think up until verse 12, sort of as start a new paragraph with 13, but it's not really a new paragraph. I love how it feeds into this concept here. He says in verse 13, verily, verily, I say unto you, I give unto you to be the salt of the earth, but if the salt shall lose its savor, wherewith shall the earth be salted? The salt shall be thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. So this whole beatitude process, you know, is denoting a person who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or of the kingdom of God. And we could have discussion, the difference between those two, but for our purposes here, it, it, that's not really relevant. And the question might then arise, well, but what, what good are we doing in the world if they don't understand us? And they're just going to persecute us. And so I love verse 13 where he says, well, there don't have to be a lot of you necessarily in order to 
uh, make a good change in order to improve the condition of the world, of society, so to speak. You know, it's like putting salt in something. You don't have to put a ton for it to make a difference. A little good goes a long way. You are to be unique, and you have unique properties to you. And so, follow, you know, being someone who takes upon themselves the name of Christ and is experiencing this process of the Beatitudes is is like someone that exists in society as salt does in food in terms of without it there's there's no um there's no flavor or desirability to the food <laughs> whatsoever <laughs> and uh, so anyway i love that that symbolism there that he's telling them that even if you're just doing a little bit you know this little bit of salt goes a long way in order to improving the world around you. And um, then he goes into a discussion about the light on the hill, right? Being an example to others that all of these things serve to show that, you know, there's, this isn't just about you internally experiencing this peace, but it's also about you inviting others to experience it as well. At this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ turns from this Beatitude-type person, and now we begin to see little vignettes about what this kind of person is going to be in these different kinds of situations. So it's like taking different prominent theories and different prominent situations that probably arose a lot in his day. Things about violence, things about morality, uh, things about the law, and he starts to be able to juxtapose some of these. And he's like, hey, listen, and this is like what you were talking about before, Ben, you have heard it hath been said this. As if this was the standard that tried to get you to a place to understand what I'm about ready to tell you. <laughs> but you you never made the correlation. You, you never connected the dots. So let me just spell it, spell it out for you, right? And so he, be, he starts here, but there's a little bit something that's different here. And uh, Ben, I'm interested in your thoughts here in verse 19. You and I were talking a little bit before but verse 19 doesn't appear in the in Matthew that I know of. And so what do you see here with the with the keeping the commandments here in verse 19? Well, so um I, I didn't really look very close at 19 until 20. Verse 20 says, Therefore come unto me and be ye saved, for verily I say unto you, except ye shall keep my commandments, which I have commanded you at this time, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. You know, and th it, this seems a, a very odd thing to throw in here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount when um, really what he's doing is trying to get the people to see a higher law, a state of being rather than a state of doing, a state where you have heard it have been said you need to you need to act in this way. And what I'm saying to you is that really you need to become like this follow me and and if you've become like this then you will see the fruits of your actions may manifest themselves in this way not only will you not kill people you know that's an easy thing right <laughs> but you won't even be angry with people um so so anyway going back to this keep my commandments i thought it was kind of an odd thing to say there so i i wondered well what is he what is he saying in terms of commandments well it actually says it in in verse 19, 
this explains it very well. He says, And behold, I have given unto you the law and the commandments of my father. That, this is like a colon, right? This is, these are the commandments. One, ye shall believe in me. These are shalls instead of shalt nots, right? Ye shall believe in me, and that ye shall repent of your sins, and come unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Behold, ye have the commandments before you, and the law is fulfilled. And this is a little bit different formulation, you could say, of Christ saying the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Here he says, keep these commandments. One, believe in me, repent, and come unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So I just love how all of that concept of keeping his commandments is condensed in those three imperatives that are shouts, not shalt nots. Um, and then he starts going into a little bit of a commentary almost on the Ten Commandments here, which are shalt nots. And what he ends up doing is saying, you've been told not to do this, but let me tell you what to do. Rather than defining righteousness by what it isn't, let me tell you what righteousness is. And so it's it's a much more beautiful way of of defining or or offering sanctification as opposed to just the concept of justification according to the law. Yeah, I like that a lot because it really does show that Christ meets us where we're at, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he's not he's not looking he's not coming down as this great accuser. He's not trying to come down. I think of the woman taken in adultery, and I love that story when he's when he says, "Woman, where are your accusers?" And she's like, "No one, Lord." He's like, "Neither do I condemn you. I'm not your accuser either." And a lot of the time we look at Christ as the accuser, you know, in, in our, our episode last week, we got into some pretty, <laughs> some pretty interesting discussions about uh, who, who might be talking and who might not be talking with Jesus as the destroyer. But once we got into chapter 11, we begin to see exactly how it is that Christ heals and that he comes as the healer and he comes as the non-accuser, as it were. Yeah, he's not, with, with this beatitude type person, all he's doing is he's opening up windows of like, this is who you are. This is how this is manifest. Now, to give you context, you've heard it hath been said this, and this is kind of how you've lived before. But I'm going to show you this new way. And this is what this person will go out and do instead. And that way of teaching I find is absolutely beautiful. So there's um, volumes and volumes of commentary on a lot of this stuff in terms of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and I don't, I don't know that me and you, um, in with all of our doctorates and seminary degrees, right, from all of the <laughs> the colleges of divinity, could could necessarily add a lot to that. Um, but um, I, th- a few little things that that stand out to me. Um, here, I, I've liked his discussion in verses 25 and 26, but um, I'm actually uh, want to jump to verse 30 because uh, we, we talked about this uh, briefly before in a previous podcast about the symbol of the cross and how it is just not uh, very prominent in Latter-day Saint culture. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? There's There's books Uh, written on this that are very fascinating and stuff. But the reason I want to point out verse 30 is because I I think I said this before, and like I said in a previous podcast, that 
Christ is using the symbolism here of the cross not only as an emblem of his own death, but also as an imperative to those he's teaching to look to as a symbol in order to inspire them to become what they can become. And not only that, but this is the resurrected Christ that is presenting this. It's not even the mortal or the, you know, uh, pre-resurrected Christ that, that is this. So verse 30 says, For it is better that you should deny yourselves of these things, wherein ye will take up your cross, than that ye should be cast into hell. All this to say that uh, I think that if a resurrected Christ coming to the people of Nephi, quote-unquote, right? <laughs> coming to this people in the new world using this symbolism in order to teach them about how they are to follow him in his greatest discourse, I think that it is a legitimate symbol that we could use in a Latter-day Saint cultural context without any criticism. <laughs> Absolutely. And I've said it before, but I really do think that one we've lost so much rich discussion by doing away with the cross and i understand the the history for it and i've read the books you know the books that you talked about <laughs> i i've read them i get it and but the problem is is that we really have strawmanned that whole conversation right the most popular thing is well we don't want to focus on the death of christ we want to focus on the life of christ and let the life of our members shine forward and i'm like well I don't know if I necessarily buy that because every Sunday morning we come before a literal burial shroud. Well, a symbolic, a literally symbolic burial <laughs> literally shroud. Literally right? symbolic. <laughs> and we cannibalize the flesh and blood of our deity. And we don't have any problems with that. And even in the songs that we sing while we're doing that, it says things like, you know, memory of his death and... And all of this. So like, this is, this is wrapped up in what is called our most sacred ordinance. And it's, it's simply not mutually exclusive to celebrate, not a, not in a like party happy way, but, but in a, a memory and a, a symbolic way to celebrate the, the death of Christ and the life of Christ. Those aren't mutually exclusive. They're, they're all right. part of the same thing. They're all part of who we are because they're part of who he is. And, and he is who we're trying to emulate. So again, yeah, like you were saying, it's a straw man because these aren't, these, these two things aren't mutually exclusive. We don't have to focus on one at the expense of the other. Right. In the episode that, uh, Christopher Hurtado and I did in there that didn't end up real well, the one that we missed. We talked a little bit more about the cross as a symbolism that it was actually used by early Christians as a sim symbolism of the tree of life. Mm -hmm. And that Christ is literally the fruit of the tree of life. That the sacrament then is literally the partaking of the fruit of the tree of life, the love of God. And that that was supposed to be one of the earliest representations of the cross. So actually the cross was actually a symbol of life Correct. and love not of death, right? So even that does away with the whole, you know, if your brother was shot by a gun, would you carry a gun around your neck kind of thing? So yeah, the, we really missed the whole thing. And I love that you bring up this verse because the, the only other 
verse that uh, I, I think in the Book of Mormon, I think there might be one more. I think there's just the two, but where the cross is invoked is in Jacob 1, and it's in verse 8. And he says, Wherefore, I would to God that we could persuade all men not to rebel against God, to provoke him to anger, but that all men would believe in Christ, view his death, and suffer his cross and bear the shame of the world. Right? Now that bearing the shame of the world, now that's beatitude talk to me about being able to be persecuted for Christ's name and for his right. namesake and to believe in Christ. Well, that has everything to do with those commandments that you just talked about. And this, uh, this whole thing is just highly reflective of everything that's going on here in third Nephi. So we, we see that just a lot of this symbolism is that a common friend of ours on uh, social media posted, uh, kind of tongue in cheek about following Jesus that we we all want to follow Jesus until we know where he's walking towards and he's always walking towards the the cross right and so it's yeah. like everybody wants to follow him until we realize we're going to Golgotha then and then he made something of like well Jesus I'm sorry I've got some laundry I got to go do I'll see you later <laughs> <laughs> he like takes off right but that's where Christ is always walking towards that's the entire point of the book of Mark is that when Christ should have zigged to save his life, he zagged. And when he should have zagged, he zigged. Everything that he did, he proactively marched his way to the cross. And we who take upon ourselves that same name do that as well. And we start to see that some more here in how this works. But you talked about 25 and 26, Ben. Um, and I don't, I don't know, I'll go back to that because that's really great stuff. In, in 25, it says, Agreeing with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time he shall get thee there and shall cast thee into prison. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence until thou hast paid the utmost senine. And while there in prison, can ye pay even one senine? Verily, verily, I say unto you, nay. Yeah, you had a story. <laughs> you had a story about this. <laughs> I had uh, a teacher once. I don't know if I was a teenager. What tell me that you know, read the scripture and tell me? Well, that means that if you're in prison, you can't repent. And I didn't believe it then. <laughs> I don't believe it now. Um, no, no, no. This is talking in the context of everything that's going on here. Um, this is talking about how you are going to show mercy to your enemy, how you're going to show mercy to your offender. And so what are you going to do? You're going to suffer their, their quote unquote justice as, as much as, as they demand. But what Christ is saying is that before it even gets to that point, if you will go to him, if you will go to your supposed enemy and, and seek reconciliation, you may find uh, peace right away. Um, and so, you know, he says, agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him. Uh, because otherwise, you know, you're going to find a time when you may not be able to reconcile with him. And, and that's not about repentance. That's just about peace, um, interpersonal peace. The discussion here goes on, um, in this fashion on, on how to have peace as an individual and as a person. Yeah, 39. I think you have some commentary on this, but I say unto you that ye shall not resist evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this is uh, one of the most iconic uh, phrases in all the New Testament in scripture that Christ says. 
at least the second part is, but this first part, you shall not resist evil, isn't discussed very much. In fact, uh, the opposite of it is is commonly invoked as as wisdom. Yeah, it, this whole resist not resist not evil or not resist evil. I think we can really try to pull a lot of that out. But in twenty six, you had mentioned several podcasts ago about justice, and man, it has sunk with me and. Well, it has stuck with me and really sunk. <laughs> I got to get my analogies right about how this justice things works. Because in this particular way, and I love, and whenever I read 26, I think about the anti Nephi Lehi's. And, and, and how I do that is when it's talking about, you know what, when, when an adversary comes and says, you owe me this much money, or you, you know, agree with thine adversary while they're in the way with him. Less than any time he delivered the over to the judge. You know, I find that this kind of way of being is disarming. It disarms the the anger against you. And it, it disarms that that coming against you. In the story of the Antinephi Lehi is when Ammon and Lamoni there are talking about where to go. And Lamoni is and his people are more than happy to stay there and to be killed. And, and that's really kind of, that's an option that they're actually entertaining and they seem okay with it. And Ammon, on the other hand, is kind of losing his mind. He doesn't, he doesn't want this to happen. Right. And so Lamoni kind of acquiesces and he's like, all right, fine. We can go into the Nephites and we'll be their slave until we've repaid, we paid them for all of the things that, uh, that we've done all the murders for all the 500 years until they feel that we've paid them back for it. Now, I don't think Ammon really got what Lamoni was laying down because Ammon immediately responds. He's like, no, 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 no. No, my father said there can't be any slaves. No. I'm like, that's, that's not really what I'm thinking Lamoni was understanding. Hmm. See, Lamoni understood that they were willing to suffer the, they were already, they were already right with God. They had already been cleansed from their sin. They had already been taken care of. They knew they were right. They could die right then and there, and that would have been okay. But they go into the Nephites to suffer the Nephites' sense of justice. That they will not just go in knowing full well that God they're already right with God. But now they're going through this process to reconcile themselves to the Nephites to bring the Nephites into the same love of God that they're in, and they will do it by being their slave. Just like Ammon did, like with Lamoni, he's like, hey, I'll, I'll be your servant. I'll stay here maybe for, you know, for a time or for the rest of my life. But it's this whole, I will, I will allow myself to be subservient to you until you feel that this has been paid for. And so really this, this suffering for this injustice it's us suffering for another person's sense of injustice. And so when I see Christ here saying, listen, when you are in prison, don't come out until you've paid every C9. You be there until you fulfill everybody else's sense of justice so that you can be reconciled as a follower of Christ, that you can be unified with them and they can never see anything wrong in your character. Right? So when it comes over here to verse 39 and it says, resist not evil, you know, this doesn't mean that we give in to evil. 
But man, we talked about we talked about with Pahorn back in mm-hmm. chapter sixty one of Alma, right? And Pahorn's like, "Let us resist evil, and, and if we can't resist evil with our words, we're going to resist evil with our swords, and we're going to kill everybody." <laughs> and, and Pahorn is such a good guy, <laughs> and he, right? He's we know he's a good guy, but man, he doesn't understand this yet. Obviously not. This is I'm sure they're just as just as amazed now. But this whole resist evil, at least at a personal level, there's there's discussions we can have on this. But in a personal application with this, with temptation, this is not Jesus telling us to be able to give in to temptation, mm. right? To to just let evil run rampant, right? Mm-mm. But as I've experimented with this, what I've noticed personally is that when I've let temptation, those feelings of temptation come, and I just sit with them. And even I, I can just sit down and be like, wow, I'm being tempted right now. Like, this is a legitimate temptation. Like, I have a desire to do something. And I just take a few deep breaths and I sit there in silence with it. And I don't fight against it. I don't try to, like, do anything. I just sit with it. I don't try to, like, make it go away. I, I just sit with it. My experience with that process is that more often than not, it just comes and goes. You know, I say, sometimes I say a little prayer. I'm like, you know, Heavenly Father, thank you for that experience. Thank you that I was able to have that experience and just to see that come and flow through me and come and just kind of like, like it came with me and it just went away. It just, and it left. And I've noticed that what we resist persists. That in which we resist persists. And when we find a way to surrender and just let it go, it disappears. See, anger, frustration, fighting violence, it always expects someone to rise to the occasion to fight back with it in kind. And really in the New Testament, another way of looking at this resisting on evil is also spoken of in a lot of different commentaries as responding in kind. Right. So that when someone comes at you in one way, you respond to them equally in the other way. If someone yells at you, you yell back. If someone comes at you with violence, well, you either come back with equal violence or greater violence to be able to solve the situation. And that's exactly what he's telling us not to do. Yeah, eye for eye, two for tooth. That's exactly right. Because then he immediately says, listen, because whosoever shall smite thee on the cheek, you turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law to take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him too, or twain. Give to him that asketh thee from him that would borrow, turn thou not away. Now, what I love about these is that in each one of these situations, one where you've been physically hit, on the other one where you've been physically stolen from by due process, and the other one where you've been conscripted into slavery, like military service, in each and every one of these Christ is not talking to the perpetrator of violence. He's talking to the victim. He's talking to the person who's being the victim here. And so in this way, it's the person who's being hit. It's the person who's being sued. It's the person who's being conscripted. And in none of this did Jesus ever rise up and say, fight back. In every single one of these situations, Jesus said, listen, when you get hit on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
when you are sued, give freely your coat. In fact, even double it. Give them your best cloak as well. When you are told and conscripted, and this is really important, even in uh, in Roman law, when they had the mile markers, and you and, and, and you could get conscripted to carry a soldier's pack for a mile, you willingly did too, because you know. And then you had to run back another mile. So instead of going two miles, you ended up going four to get back to where you were. Now there has to be a. There's always a consequence, right? There's always a consequence to action, and. In our typical way of looking at atonement theory, and and, and I, I've had several evolutions of this, but it's an easy way to explain this, is that when we talk about the consequence, who's going to bear, bear the consequence of the, an, a particular action, that there's a consequence we don't discuss. It's like, that's just kind of like obvious, right? But who bears the consequence of, you know, of the injustice is something that is still in the air. See, we are a, a church and a theology that we believe in doing things by proxy, right? <laughs> it's the entire mm-hmm. thing the temple's built on. We just believe in proxy. We believe in proxy of atonement, right? That Jesus takes care of and suffers for us by proxy. And we are called upon to bear the shame of the world and to not resist and to fight back in the same way the world is fighting back. Because we've got to remember, the world is operating under the Cain narrative of violence, and we are called to be beatitude people. We don't respond in the same way that the world responds. We respond as Christians, as people who've taken upon ourselves the name of Christ, in a different way. We suffer on the cross for all of those who heap injustice upon us and we return good for evil all the time while praying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in this way, we become types and saviors to each other in finite ways and temporal ways, what Christ did for us in eternal and infinite ways. You know, and one of the most fascinating things about this concept is while Christ isn't necessarily speaking in practical terms, he's not saying do it this way because it will, you know, lead to the best outcome for all of civilization. He's really speaking to the individual, right? And, and saying, because in the last verse, therefore I would that you should be perfect, even as I as your father in heaven is perfect. He's not giving a prescription for how civilization is going to be great. He's giving a prescription for how you as an individual can follow him. Um, however, I should throw this in here. It is fascinating to study the fact, the practicality of these things. And it has been shown ultimately that uh, one of the most effective ways of disarming another person is by not resisting. So when Christ says you shall not resist evil, you know, what happens psychologically is that no one likes to perceive themselves or or at least even in modern context as the aggressor, right? There's always some sort of justification for their actions, you know, um, Maybe a, a thief thinks, well, I'm poor and so I'm entitled to this, so they steal. Maybe someone who aggresses believes that they are defending themselves or their honor or or punishing someone for that or this or that. And so 
any sort of resistance or response in kind, like you talked about to that, only serves to further justify that person's actions within their own mind. And, and so just as we are supposed to be saviors for them in the sense that we're following Christ, if we don't do that and we instead follow the path of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, what we end up doing is justifying in their minds retroactively their actions. And so, you know, someone punches you, uh, you punch them back. Now they feel justified in the fact that they punched you in the first place. <laughs> and um, so anyway, from a, like a practical standpoint, there there's a lot of really deep and profound things that could be said here. Now, having said all that, I'm going to circle back to the fact that I don't I don't believe that that's primarily what Christ is saying in terms of what he's uh, teaching the people here. It isn't about achieving a specific outcome because I still believe in the doctrine of perhaps, you know, there's, there's agency here. Uh, what it is is, again, that imperative that we take up our cross and follow him, that we might be a savior to another person, that we might persuade them to follow the way of Christ. Isn't that amazing, though? I mean, like with the anti-Nephite Lehi's, they didn't get together. And they're like, you know what? If we go out there and we prostrate ourselves on the ground and we act in the way of the Christ, there's going to be more people converted than there are people who are going to die. Let's go do it, right? You know, the numbers add up, right? <laughs> there's That's not the discussion that's going on. And when Jesus is there atoning in, in you know, the standard narratives of atonement and theories of atonement that we adopt— when he's there atoning, he's not s selecting, all right, well, Bob's not going to take me up on this, but Sue is, and uh, we'll have uh, oh, Carrie over here. Carrie yeah, will do it half the time. I'll do it for him, right? No, this, this whole doctrine of perhaps that you and I have talked so much about and that I absolutely love is that we do this not for an outcome-based end result. We do this because this is just who we are. We are beatitude living people. And I love that you brought up verse 48 with being perfect. In the New Testament, the Greek word for perfection there, it is really grossly misunderstood and misapplied in Mormon culture, not doctrinally necessarily, but if in Mormon culture, the word for perfect there is telos, which just basically means complete or to the purpose of your creation. It, it's, a, it's a really complicated, and we've gone into it, I think, a little bit before, but it really just speaks to who and what we are as human beings. And are you fulfilling the mission that, and the, the purpose by which you were created? And that is so nuanced to every single person that this perfection is really not something that we can really compare anyone to or ourselves against anyone else. Except Christ. So this is, except Christ, right? Because yeah. this is so individualistic. That once you said, well, I'm not perfect because of, and you list anyone else at all, <laughs> mm -hmm. you're not, you're obviously at that moment, you're not talking about the perfection that's being talked about here that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about your relationship with him in coming into that beatitude life and fulfilling the purpose and measure of your creation as a human being. That's what the whole thing's about. And guess what? It's not something that you're ever going to like achieve because it's that circle. That's that's why it's so important to realize that 
the first beatitude and the last beatitude have the same blessing and they connect and it's one eternal round and we're always working on it. We're, we're working on step six and, and the sixth beatitude and the first beatitude all the time. And we just keep going around and around until we realize that, man, this is just a beautiful life and we just get to live this. And so this perfection here has nothing to do with any outer appearance. It has nothing to do with any expectations about what this life should be. It doesn't have any expectations as to how our lives should have turned out, what plat- what stepping stones we should have made in our lives, what goals we should have already achieved. It has nothing to do with any of that. You can be perfect in this way immediately. Just by entering into this beatitude conversation, you've immediately entered into the realm of perfection. That's really all it takes. Be perfect. Christ isn't telling you to go out there and to do perfect. It's to be perfect. And that's what the whole thing about the be attitudes is to be this kind of person and to follow this way through. Well, I, I see verse 48 as sort of this really beautiful paradox because just like you were saying, you know, the point of this isn't to compare ourselves to any other person. Um, what happens when we do that is we feel that, that shame or, um, that pride. Um, and, and that's when we're comparing ourselves to someone else who's not quote unquote, what we would deem perfect. Right. But the moment that we compare ourselves actually to Christ in coming unto him, who is truly the only perfect, even in, even in that other sense of the word person who lived a sinless life, all of a sudden it's no more about shame or condemnation because he's our savior and he's given everything for us. And so it's, like I said, it's this beautiful paradox wherein only in comparing ourselves to true perfection do we actually find the, the power to, to become that. And when we, we do anything less than that, then we actually shame ourselves or, or we actually, uh, sort of throw a damper on our perception of, of our potential. I should say. Yeah. Um, so we just spent an hour and 20 minutes on one chapter. <laughs> yeah. So- I don't think we've ever done that. I did. I had no <laughs> idea that was going to happen. We've got four more chapters. I don't know what your week's like. Maybe we could do a part two of this. Yeah, let's try it. Let's try it because we we can come back. Uh, And one of the things that we just want to reinforce is that every single one of these new topics that Christ is going to start bringing about, like for instance, in verse 13, he starts to bring about alms to the poor and praying and that Mm -hmm. we have the Lord's prayer, forgiveness and fasting, laying up treasures, you know, the the whole body and the light of the eye and, and all of these great things. Each and every one of these for me, you can insert the Beatitudes right before each and every one of these. It's, it's like saying, yeah. here's the Beatitudes, and then here's here's something else about that. Here's the Beatitudes, and this is how you pray. Here's the Beatitudes, and here's about this is a little bit about forgiveness. Here are the Beatitudes, and now here's a little bit about fasting and what it looks like to fast for a person who's in a Beatitude life. So as, as we come back, just keep that in mind that this is all about Beatitude-style living 
And all of these are now expressions of who and what that kind of person is. Great. Yeah. And and I had made those notes, especially with chapter 13. You know, I just made notes as, oh, this is sort of his example of how we help others. He's given us the pattern. And now he's saying, okay, so because of the way that you understand things, I'm going to speak to your understanding. So then he starts like laying out these examples of these different religious practices. And if, if you're, if you're on the beatitude path, this is, this is what this would look like. And this is what this would look like. And this is what this would look like. And although to a person who would be like perfectly spiritually in tune, maybe that wouldn't be necessary. Oh, it sure is helpful um, to to really (laughs) see that, you know? (laughs) Right. Well, cool. Well, let's get back and do this again. So for right now, we'll sign off. And I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you, everybody, for listening. 